Well, hello, and welcome back from your weekends. I think I said that before the news. Um, So towards the end of the show today, we will, as is our custom on Mondays, provide you with the latest scientific and epidemiological perspectives about the current pandemic. We do this just about every Monday. Uh, But before that, I'm very excited about this guest. Um, I've been a fan of his work for a long time. In fact, reading his new book, I realized how long I've been a fan uh, of Tony Schwartz. Certainly goes back to the early 1980s. Tony Schwartz is a journalist, a political commentator. Uh, His most recent book, the one I've been reading, is called Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. Um, He's done many things in his life, uh, including write a lot of really good stuff, but also uh, become the founder and CEO of something called the Energy Project. Alas, perhaps alas, uh, when he passes from this earth, which we hope will be many decades from now, the the lead on the obit is going to be basically the guy who wrote the art of the deal for Donald Trump. And this is a legacy uh, he wrestles with in this new book, along with lots of other things. This is not just a book about... Donald Trump, or even about his mother and Donald Trump, who, to the best of my knowledge, never met anyway. Uh, so, first of all, Tony Schwartz, welcome to the show. I'm so excited. Thank you, and thank you for that nice intro. I was a big fan of What Really Matters, which is a 1995 book that you did. Uh, that, wow. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, because you and I have both worked in newsrooms quite a bit, and you know, when you work in a newsroom and you have a desk, but it's always getting moved someplace else, and they they're going to remodel something. And a tribute to how much you like a book is whether you're willing to move it a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, and I think I moved what really matters through you know a lot of desk moves and stuff like that. So uh, it's the highest compliment I can I can pay to you. a book. Thank you. So just before we delve into the specifics here, I mean, I think it's worth saying that this book, although it does substantially address your relationship with Trump and whatever self-flagellation you, uh, I think, perhaps to an extreme degree, want to do about it, um, it's it's much more than that. This is a memoir, and it's you know a much larger reckoning, I think, with who you are, how you've lived your life, and what your career means. So maybe you could just start by telling me, was, was there a particular germ uh, of an idea that made you want to write this specific book? Well, it's interesting. I started trying to write this book in 2014, at which point I thought Trump was permanently out of my life. I hadn't had anything to do with him in, you know, 25 plus years. And the book I wanted to write was a blend of my own journey and then how I thought that journey, my own personal journey, growth journey, if you will, and how that was applicable to others. Uh, And I set out to write it. And for the first time in my writing, book writing life, I just couldn't get it done. I wrote over a period of uh, three, four years, I wrote probably several hundred pages and they just didn't feel right to me. And then uh, a guy named David Blum, who runs uh, Audible Original, came to me and had seen a talk I gave in right about now in... uh, at Oxford about what I anticipated about what my experience had been with Trump. This is before he'd been elected, what my fears were if he did get elected and what some of the germ of what this book is, was contained in that talk. And David encouraged me to turn that talk into a slightly longer, uh, 15,000 word piece say that he would then publish as an audible original and 60,000 words later, uh, I've published it now, this, this, what is now dealing with the devil. So 
it's really, and you, you, you hinted at it, it's really trying to pull together the threads of a life that uh, in some ways, maybe in many ways, seemed very contradictory even to me in terms of the impulses I had, in terms of the choices I made. And I was wrestling with, uh, as you do when you get older, you know, what's it all mean? And mm -hmm. so in a way, this is what really matters too. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in a way, this is a book about what it's like to be you and you, as they used to say, I don't know if people say this anymore, but you've done a lot of work on yourself. People used to say that, right? You've done a lot of sort of self-examination, uh, both spiritual and psychological. Uh, it's, it's about that idea from Ibsen, you know, that to live is to battle with the trolls uh, in, in the vaults of heart and brain. Or as Susan Bolin, the daughter of Eric Erickson, says, uh, you quote her in your book, the security of the self is never stable. God, I love that line. Yeah, so, exactly. um, so, but it's also, I mean, I, I think uh, implied as opposites all the way through this book are you and Donald Trump. The idea that, I mean, Trump has never done any work on himself. Trump has rarely, it would appear, asked himself any questions about his moral culpability for things or except in the crudest sense why he might be the kind of person that he is. God, God knows, I don't think he's asked himself what it all means or what really matters. Um, and, and in a way, I don't know, it's, it, I, I come away from reading your book thinking that actually gives him kind of an advantage. <laughs> Well, over people who have depends wrestled on with what tools. scale we're rating on. And there's no question in my mind that, you know, I wrote a piece uh, a couple months ago, several months ago, called The Psychopath in Chief, in which Trump came clear to the understanding Trump came, became clearer to me than it had ever been when I could see him through the lens of a sociopath. You know, I had said in 2015 to Jane Mayer at The New Yorker that if I had to rename the book, I would rename it The Sociopath. But I just said that off the top of my head, and I didn't think much about it. And then as I came to watch what he was doing, and everybody would attribute it to the fact that he was so self-absorbed and so needy of praise, and therefore that, you know, he the, the key issue was that he was so narcissistic, so self-involved, I realized that that didn't quite capture it. And what captures it is that he is in that tiny percentage of people who literally have no conscience. And it's almost unfathomable to the rest of us. To have no conscience is almost unfathomable. And it does confer a very distinct advantage. If you are not worried, if you have no shame, if you're not worried about hurting people, if you have no empathy for what people are going through, then you're perfectly comfortable doing anything. I like to analogize it to, uh, you know, running outside the lines in a football game. You know, if you had one team that simply said, well, fine, we're going to play you, but we're not going to observe the rules in any way, that team would have an advantage. Trump does too. So, you know, in being approached by Trump uh, to, to write this book, or actually the way that the book came, came together, The Art of the Deal, I mean, uh, is chronicled in a very interesting way here. I know it's something that uh, even at the time of publication, uh, you faced a lot of pushback from. I was thinking about that, uh, thinking about the title. You explained where the title came from. Uh, but I also find myself thinking about this scene from broadcast news. You're going to hear Albert Brooks talking to Holly Hunter. They're talking about Tom, the charismatic, handsome 
Lonesome Anchor, played by William Hurt. And here's what Albert Brooks has to say. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he going to sound like? <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious? He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. So there, some of that doesn't apply uh, to Donald Trump. But that idea, Tony, of lowering our standards where they matter bit by bit, there's a sense that maybe that process did start in the 1980s and it's still going on. But you react to that. Well, uh, first of all, I would agree with you. And I think the 1980s is, in fact, the right date to do it. Uh, 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 there's a book uh, by Kurt Anderson right now called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, which really, I think, brilliantly captures the fact that that was already in play, uh, beginning sort of with the election of Ronald Reagan and the increasing primacy of the wealthy um, after many, many years of strong unions and the big middle class. And yeah, I think it's not standards. It's uh, it's values. It's what do you, what, what's meaningful in this world? You know, I actually think um, I could jump on a soapbox on this one, but I, I think it's almost unconscionable to have a great deal of wealth now and be almost beyond unconscionable to, to have, uh, you know, $100 billion or $150 billion of which you will never be able to spend, nor will generations of your family, more than the tiniest percentage of that. But then you're going to hoard it in various investments while the world burns. And that just, it's, it's really sick. And it started in the 80s and it got worse and worse. And there are a whole series of people who helped it along, some of them Democrats. And it is now at you know, an inflection point, because I don't believe, Colin, that we can that we can as a nation or as a nation, we will recognize survive the reelection of Donald Trump. Just don't believe it. So, uh, you know, uh, by the way, Kurt Anderson was on the show a couple of weeks ago. I told him I this, figured uh, that that was yes. probably true. <laughs> yes, you guys, you're going to have the, on Amazon. It'll be people who bought this book, frequently bought this book, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, and, and at the time, I, you know, we talked about the 80s then. And you know, look, I. Sometime in the late 80s, Grace Mirabella got fired by Vogue. Rupert Murdoch started up this magazine called Mirabella. I got hired right away as a contributing editor. I couldn't have been happier. I took the money. You know, it wasn't art of the deal kind of money, but I could buy a, you know, brand new Toyota Camry with it. Um, I didn't ask too many questions about Rupert Murdoch. Part of the problem was there was this incredible wealth growth in the 1980s. But most of us who were journalists in the 1980s were not participating at the same level. But, you know, I mean, when these opportunities came, if you were starting a family, you had little kids, you know, which was your the case for you. 
it was kind of hard to say no to the devil. And I, I think you, you do a pretty good job of sketching that out. But I'll, I'll let you, you once again well, react. Yeah, it's why I wrote this book in many ways. Maybe the right answer to your original question about that. Meaning that um, what I really realized here, I went and did this book. It was, a, it was 1985. Um, Donald Trump was just beginning to be a big figure. Certainly wasn't known nationally uh and much less internationally and he was a real estate developer he was a real estate developer who was mid-level even with what you knew was true i mean much less what was actually true which made him a an almost a barely a developer barely a real estate developer because there was so much he said that wasn't true but what i what what i got uh what I became fascinated with in his running for re-election and forcing me back into his life and into you know reckoning with what I helped to to create was the idea that you just said like where do you make these choices that are true to what both who you believe you fundamentally are or at the very least to who you want to be, to who you aspire to be. And I knew from moment one, this is why the level of um, self-flagellation, you might call it, or of the, the hunger to do penance for what I did is, is so relevant. I knew who Donald Trump was. I knew exactly who he was when I started writing the book. I just didn't think it mattered that much. I mean, that's how you rationalize. You know, we each have, Colin, an inner lawyer. And that inner lawyer lives to defend and protect and rationalize and minimize and put the blame on others for all the stuff that you choose to do that is morally gray, that is maybe not something you should do. And that little lawyer comes along, maybe it's a big lawyer, and constantly gives you reasons to make you feel less bad about the choices that you're making. And oh, yeah, I agree. That, that's what happened to me, is that I didn't look ahead. I looked at the fact that I was struggling to pay my mortgage. And here was a guy offering me to pay, offering to pay me a huge amount of money relative to what I'd ever earned. And I thought, this is going to change my life. And guess what? It totally changed my life, but not in the ways I thought it would. Right. I mean, you did too good a job on behalf of Donald Trump. I mean, you're too you turned out to be too good a writer. He, as you kind of chronicle in this book, was really incapable of contributing meaningfully to the book, at least as an interviewee or somebody who would just sort of tell you stuff that could go in the book. The only way you could do it was kind of observationally. And, and then you did uh, this magnificent job. But, uh, you know. Ego te absolvo. I mean, we also had Alex Ross on recently, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, you can't blame Wagner for the rise of Nazism. Nazism happened for a whole bunch of other reasons. And, you know, yes. I mean, Trump was going to be Trump whether you wrote a terrific book or not. I, I, I agree. Yeah. But, you know, that's the same argument that uh, lawyers make when they're defending somebody incorrigible, like right. a Trump, is, you know, everybody deserves a defense. So, you know, if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Well, fine. But you you shouldn't do it. And to Tony Schwartz, I say, <laughs> fine. Yes, I understand the, all the reasons that you can make up that it would be OK to do it. But you shouldn't. And I did. It's like Alan Dershowitz when he was defending Klaus uh, Berko, uh, Klaus. The guy, von Bula. 
Von Bülow, and, and he kept talking about how he was doing it so he had a money to defend these poor black kids in the city. Oh, yeah. Well, the that was that was that was a classic <laughs> inner lawyer rationalization yeah. by an outer for, lawyer. For, yeah, but, an inner, but an inner lawyer talking with to, no real soul. Right, an inner lawyer talking to the outer lawyer. By the way, we're going to go to a break right here. I will just quickly say there's a terrific outer lawyer moment in Tony's book where after he's kind of you know, aired some of these ideas a little bit in the campaign environment of 2015 and 2016. He gets a hello letter from a Trump lawyer uh, demanding, among other things, that he return all of the royalties that he got for Art of the Deal, which I am proud to say Tony does not do. Anyway, let's take a quick break here. We come, we'll come back. There's so much more to talk about. One day you're gonna have to face a deep, dark truth from mirror. And it's gonna tell you things that I still love you too much to say. The sky was just a purple bruise. The ground was All right, we're back with Tony Schwartz. Um, his new book is uh, a memoir that includes his uh, Dance with the Devil uh, with Donald Trump, but so many other things as well. The book's called uh, The Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. Um, I quickly just want to say, I have to pull back the curtain for a second here and tell the listeners a quick story, which is that, and I do stuff like this all the time, and it's really annoying, but as the show was about to start, we're like three minutes from air, I type into Slack that what we should have pulled was the Elvis Costello song, Deep Dark Truthful Mirror. It's perfect for Tony's book. Uh, And so while we were just doing stuff in that um jonathan mcpants who's not even producing this episode saw it in slack pulled the song sent it up to cat pastor in the studio so that we could play it uh, right there so um anyway yeah you, you work with good people you should say it once in a while that people can do stuff like that for you so uh, you know tony schwartz there's so much in the book that i want to talk about and so little time but um you know, I think I would be remiss given what's going on in the news today if I didn't point out that, you know, part of your early career takes place in the old New York Post, the New York Post that included the Nora Ephron's and the Pete Hamels and the Frank Rich and people like that. Uh, and that, of course, today in the news is a, a kind of staff rebellion at the New York Post where uh, because of the Hunter Biden thing, which a lot of the reporters, including the person forced to write the story, apparently felt was inadequate adequately vetted and not quite as real uh, as it was being argued to be. There's kind of a mini revolt going on in the newsroom. And I just, you know, as somebody who invested some of his time in the New York Post, what are you thinking about today? Or possibly, what are you hearing about this? Well, uh, let me just connect what my relationship is to the Post, was to the Post. So uh, just before Rupert Murdoch bought the Post, still owned by Dolly Schiff, um, I was hired to replace a very famous gossip columnist named Leonard Lyons and to write a gossip column. And I was 24 years old. I knew no nothing about gossip. I had no sources. Um, and the editor, a wonderful editor there named Bob Spitzler, who since passed on, it, you know, called me and said, hey, I think you could be good at this. And I ended up saying, yes, this is another one of those kinds of decisions that you you can make because listen, they were going to put my name on a column in a New York city newspaper when I was a kid. And it was going to be, I was going to get to go to really cool places and hang out with celebrities. And actually it did turn out to be fun. It just didn't turn out to be fun for very long. And it stopped being fun when Rupert Murdoch bought the paper 
and immediately announced that the archetype of the person who he didn't want at the New York Post was Tony Schwartz. And this is so relevant to what happened today. The reason he didn't want the uh, a Tony Schwartz was because um, I was embarrassed about being a gossip. And I wrote from that perspective. I wrote from the perspective of a kind of wide-eyed ingenue a little. Um, oh, my God, look what I found myself in. And he immediately took aim at that in the Village Voice in an interview he did. And so it became clear to me moments after he did that, that I had no future at the New York Post. So I actually only lasted four months there. <laughs> it's the truth of the matter. Um, and what's ironic about it is that he replaced me with page six. Mm -hmm. And page six is the epitome of, you know, this... Uh, sort of maybe possibly salaciously true stuff that's dressed up as if it's legitimate and as if they're really reporting the news. And this latest example with regard to Hunter Biden and this lost computer is the perfect example of it. It's the natural outcome of the history of the post. It's in fact, I'm sure it's happened in its own way multiple times, but only this time did it did it surface. And if there's ever going to be a culprit more, most responsible for the damage that Trump has done during the past four years, other than Donald Trump himself, in my mind, it is without doubt Rupert Murdoch. Uh, I wouldn't dispute that. I would also say, though, any set of career choices that ends up with uh, or includes standing in front of some elevators or something with John Lennon and him saying, Tony Schwartz, I like your writing. Um, that's a good set of career choices. That was a highlight. That yeah. was a highlight of my gossip <laughs> life, maybe a highlight of my life. Uh, well, to walk into an elevator and be recognized by John Lennon, hmm. uh, that's kind of mind-blowing. So I, I want to just return us because... Um, so, because so much of the book is in, in this space, is you know, so much of the book is, uh, I think, a self interrogation uh, that most of us do. You know, am I screwing up? Did I make mistakes? Did I repeat some of the mistakes of my parents with my own offspring? Did I, you know, did I do this? Did I do that? Um, and it, it does seem as though there's once again you and trump are kind of opposites there's a, a part near the end of the book where you, you are talking with one of your daughters about whether you were sufficiently accessible uh to uh to her when you were busy with your job and stuff like that and she's happy that you have so much deeper relationship now you know on the across town i think is donald trump who i think you point out in the writing of the book never mentioned his children the entire time you were writing art of the deal uh, for him uh, nor did you ever see them anywhere nor does that seem to bother uh, either him or maybe publicly at least them they seem to have been kind of almost bought off by the devil all by themselves given roles in his life now that they might have coveted when they were little maybe you could just you know Give me some Tony Schwartz analysis of all that. Well, first of all, I think that they, they each of them are each of those three kids. Maybe it's five now. If you count all the different places, those kids, all the different women from whom those kids came mm -hmm. um, are, are deeply traumatized. I don't know much about Baron. He's still young and hasn't been out there, but he has to be. But those three children are hostages. They are trauma victims. Um, you may not feel sympathy for them because they have 
in such privileged lives. But the reality about trauma is that um, it's deserving of compassion. They didn't ask for those parents. And I mean, sure, you could have imagined that one or more of them could have rebelled. In fact, Donald Jr. did rebel when he was younger, briefly. Um, but they are not making a choice. Uh, they are like Trump supporters everywhere. And I think I can really help elucidate this. Like Trump supporters everywhere, they are at the mercy of a Jim Jones. His forcefulness, his particular style of forcefulness, which was most recently obvious in the debate with uh, the first debate with Biden, where he just comes at you and comes at you and comes at you. And he's saying things you know aren't true and he's offensive and you know he's wrong. But at a certain point, you throw up your hands and you go like, I, I can't fight this. No mas. You know, no mas. I can't deal with this anymore. And I'll just go for it. And I think that I am convinced from a, for a variety of reasons that this is one of those moments in history where you've got a particular kind of figure who is Jim Jones like or is, you know, I, I pardon me for saying this, but I believe it Hitler like, I, you know, who who actually has these folks totally and completely brainwashed. And it's. It's uh, they they are not in control of their senses and nothing that they're saying, those who support Trump, really makes any rational sense. It can only be understood emotionally. So I believe Roberto Duran has said he's uh, voting for Biden. So um, Durant. I was trying to think of his name while I was saying it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had the luxury of not being talking so I could think of it. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, look, it's hard to be anybody's kid. It's hard to be my kid. It's hard to be your kid. It was hard to be our parents' kids. You know, Philip Larkin says, you know, your mom and dad, they F you up. Um, but there's. You know, one of the things that I think is an interest, interesting current in this book is it's hard to be human. It's hard for you to be a human being. Um, but there's some other way in the in the way that you're just describing. There's some other way that we are beholding a life, the, the life of Donald Trump and the people around him that is made so much harder, so much harder than the normal intergenerational traumas and the, just the traumas of life anyway, by the fact that he is just missing some kind of basic governance mechanism that keeps him from just hurtling out of control. Uh, and I guess maybe my last question uh, to you here should be, why was that appealing to people? Why could he get almost 50 percent of, of the American public to 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 vote for that particular spectacle? Well, on one level, I'll never be able to answer that question because uh, it, it seems if it didn't uh, to some people in 2015, when he was less well known, um, seem clear who he would be. He is utterly and completely clear who he is now. And by any rational measure, any sane person would say no. Um, I do think that the deep, deep affiliation that people made with Trump, let me put aside the very rich who are supportive of him. That's just plain you know, self-interest and the, the, the belief that they'll have more money at the end of the day if 
he's president than if a Democrat's president. But most of the people who support Trump, I think he's filling a different kind of deficit for them. It's not financial, although that's a part of it. It's a, it's a psychological one. It is really the experience of, you're right, Donald, we got screwed by this country, by this world, by this government. Um, we got screwed and we're pissed off about it. And you're someone who seems to stand up and say, I'm not going to take it. And it, because it's not rational, because it's just emotional, it doesn't occur to them that the people they are are the people he most despises and disenfranchises because they're thinking this could be my savior. This guy could finally stand up for me in a way that I've not been able to stand up for myself against a bad world that's treating me badly, which is the alternative to saying, I'll own it. Like, this may not be totally my fault where I am right now, but I'm going to start with looking at, we call this the energy serenity prayer. Uh, so it's just a little adapted, which is, I'm going to invest my energy in what I have the power to influence, and I'm not going to squander my energy in what I can't control. And I'm going to cultivate the wisdom to know the difference. That's what people who support Trump aren't willing to do. That's what I've tried to do in this book, is to own it. Because once you actually own, including among, as part of your ownership, all of who you are, your worst stuff, then you discover this incredible thing that has happened for me, which is I got nothing left to defend. Mm -hmm. yes, yes I think, that's true that I think there's a, stuff you say that's true yep. but it's not all that's true no but there, there is a lot of freedom I think that comes with that and it's a kind of freedom that Trump can never have, have because he's constantly cycling through this kind of self-protective self-aggrandizing uh, psychological cycle anyway we have to stop here I wish we didn't the book is terrific uh, there's so much more uh, in it uh, the letters uh, between Tony and his mother are amazing uh, and so, uh, yeah, you should read The Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me by our guest today. Dealing with the devil, just dealing, to clarify. Dealing with the devil. Sorry about that. Uh, and, well, it's important to get the first title right, the first word of the title right. So yeah, when they do go on Amazon, they find it. Dealing with the devil. So, um, and so, I don't know, come back in two or three years and we'll have a conversation that doesn't include Donald Trump at all. We won't even say the T word. I would love to do that with you. But thanks for being here today. Thank you very much. All right. So we'll be back uh, in just a very short time. Quick break here. And then we're going to talk uh, coronavirus. We're going to talk the pandemic. All right. Uh, you can only do these shows if you work with great people. So Kat Pastor's there in the studio making it all hum uh, for us. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, uh, our other main producer, uh, jumped in and pulled a song mid-show for us. Uh, that's like 
some kind of you know NASCAR pit stop fix up or something. Um, so uh, we're about to have a conversation now with Jeremy Kaneindike. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Senior uh, policy fellow and pandemic preparedness expert at the Center for Global Development and a former director of USAID's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance. Uh, and uh, during the that was during the Obama administration. I should also mention Jeremy will be co-hosting along with journalist Heba Ali. That's probably another uh, name I mispronounced. Uh, director of The New Humanitarian, a new podcast series, Rethinking Humanitarianism, which begins October 21st, which is very soon. It's a joint project by The New Humanitarian and the Center for Global Development. That was a mouthful. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to our show. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope I'm saying your last name correctly. You are. And apologies, there's a bit of noise behind me because my dog is trying to get into the office. Oh, well, my dog was barking a little <laughs> a while ago, so we're all in good company here. So, I mean, maybe we should just start with the present moment. A couple of things yeah. going on here that might be worth talking about. Uh, we all, those of us who are interested in this story, look at uh, these maps all the time, and the mm -hmm. maps never tell a good story. I'm looking at one right now from the COVID yeah. ex COVID exitstrategy.org. In yep. that one, uncontrolled spread is dark red. And, you know, basically, most of the country on this map uh, is is dark red. We clearly are in a second or third wave. Are, are we likely to do better this time? Do we have the tools to improve on our previous performance? I mean, the fact that we've turned dark red isn't a good sign to begin with, right? It's it's certainly not a good sign. And I think what it says is that we had, you know, we had an opportunity over the summer to really get case levels down to a lower level so that we'd be starting the winter in a more advantageous position. And that's what happened in much of Europe, for example. Um, we didn't do that. We had, we had uniquely amongst our peer countries, we had this huge surge in cases um, through mid to late summer that began coming down again. And now we're seeing it start to rise once again. Um, you know, the, from the first so-called, I, I don't, I don't call them three different waves because I don't think we ever really got off the wave. Yeah. So you could call it a surge within the wave, a crest, whatever. But from that first crest to the second crest, you know, we saw a, a, a higher apparent cases the second time around, comparable hospitalizations and a lower number of deaths. I think what that basically reflects is that we saw surveillance improve. So we got the ability to, to test more widely. So we saw more of the cases that were happening. We saw about the same number of hospitalizations and you know, our knowledge of what to do with people once they got hospitalized did improve. Um, and so mortality rates appeared to come down, I think in part because we were just finding more of the total cases and in part because the uh, ability to treat them did improve. Right. We should say, um, I, I agree with all of that. And, and the fact that we got somewhat better, clinicians just got better at the therapeutics yeah. of it and the treatment of it has probably yeah. lowered the death rate. But uh, according to uh, a Journal of American Medical Association piece from last week, our COVID-19 mortality rate is 60.3 per 100,000 people, 60.3. Yeah. Compare that to Canada, 24.6. Compared to Australia, 3.3 deaths per 100,000. Absolutely. So if we had the same rate as Canada, we would have lost 117,000 fewer people, uh, 188,000 fewer people had we had the death rate uh, of Australia. So, you know, there's you can argue back and forth about whether we're finding more cases because we're mm -hmm. testing more, blah, blah, blah. You can't yeah. argue with the death rate. It, you know, it, it's a lagging indicator, but people either die or they don't. Right. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think that's the really damning thing when you, you step back and look at the totality of the U.S. response. Um, you know, there were few other countries in the world 
in the Northern Hemisphere that saw the same sort of surge over the summer that we did, and few others that failed as badly as we did to bring overall cases down after their big initial surge at the outset of this. So, you know, you can kind of divide divide uh, rich countries into three categories. You've got the the countries that jumped on it very early and did very well. Uh, so, you, and, and they have some different models in that. Japan did it one way, South Korea did it another way, China did it another way, Singapore did it another way. But all of them have managed to keep cases down uh, very, very low. And so their per capita death rates, um, you know, would equate to really just a few, a few thousand in the United States. If we transposed South Korea's death rate to the United States, we'd have about 3,000 deaths here. Um, the second category are countries, uh, and much of Europe is in this category, that didn't jump on it quickly enough and did have that big initial surge, but then got on top of it over the summer and kept their kept their death rates and their case rates down through the summer, even though they're now beginning to creep back up. And you know, the kind of, some of the countries you referenced, Canada, um, uh, Germany's in this category. If we had, you know, if we had done as well as some of them, we'd have about half to, we'd saved about half to three quarters of the lives that we've lost in this country. And then you have us and, um, and some countries like the UK, where the death rates are just very, very high. We just passed the UK. And we're still trailing Spain, but we're catching up. So yeah, we have, we have really performed among the worst in the world. You know, there's a lot of things that contribute to this uh, that get talked about a lot, but there's two that I think get talked about maybe a little bit less. And I know one of them is one that you'd be interested in talking about. So the Global Health Security Index, before all this happened, I think we were ranked number one in the world, and clearly we've really uh, underperformed. And so they kind of issued a clarification, like, you know, how did we come to this conclusion and why is it wrong? And you know, they highlighted a whole bunch of deficiencies and they said the United States lowest score fell in the health system category. We don't talk about this as much, but obviously um, a, a country that has a high performing health system that everybody has access to, people don't have to worry about paying for their treatment. People you know, feel undergirded by uh, public health and, and, and a clinical safety net. Is they're gonna, We're gonna do better there. They're gonna do better there than we're doing here. Some of it's not Trump. Some of it's not our scientific illiteracy. Some of it is a system that we had in place that never worked very well. But comment. I, I think that that's I think that's part of the story. Um, you know, we have we just have less coverage in our health system. You know, part of it's that part of it's economic. Uh, we have not provided enough support to people who who may be ill to take time off work, you know, guaranteed paid leave uh, if if people are um, if people are ill. And, and a lot of the places where we saw outbreaks, particularly in the spring, were in high-risk workplaces where people could not afford not to go. And I don't think we've done nearly enough to support those people. But, you know, when you look at the index, I, mean, the, the two, I think the two biggest things, or two, well, I'll say two of the biggest things. I don't think we can, we can rank them yet. We, we need more evidence. But two of the biggest things that you see uh, that do explain variation across countries are not level of preparedness, but uh, the speed with which countries acted, and the the quality, you know, the, the quality of the leadership, and you know, so you could have a great, you could have a great health system, you could have a great public health system, but if you have uh, leadership in a country that is not listening to scientists and um, is downplaying the risk, then you know, it's like having a Ferrari but having a a blind person drive it. They're not going to do a great job. Um, you know, the problem is not the car; it's the driver. Um, and so I think that's that's a big part of what's going wrong in the United States. I think the other part is we were just very slow and very late. And so I think Japan is fascinating in this respect. So Japan has never had 
the kind of lockdown, you know, heavy lockdown that we saw in the U.S. and Europe. Um, obviously, Europe's lockdown was much heavier than ours. Um, they have, you know, they're testing. Uh, their testing per case is better than ours, but it's not like South Korea level. Um, but what Japan has done really well are two things. They've communicated exceptionally well with a very clear message that has prevented super spreading. And they began doing that very, very early. And the nature of exponential spread with a, with a, uh, a virus like this is that in a matter of a couple weeks can make enormous differences. So uh, Jeffrey Shaman, who is a an epidemiologist and modeler at Columbia University did a projection back in May that if the U.S. had instituted our uh, social distancing policies even two weeks earlier, it would have cut the death rate to that point by more than half. And you know, Japan began acting on this quite seriously back in late July, early February, when you know the whole of the U.S. government was still saying the risk here was low, and they weren't they weren't doing that much. And um, and then particularly from late February, about three weeks before the U.S. started doing widespread national uh, national social distancing, they they began implementing more uh, more stringent procedures relative to what they've been doing before. And so that difference of a few weeks and then holding that consistently and having, you know, communicating well with the public so they understand what they need to do, that has meant that Japan has been able to avoid any sort of explosive spread like we've seen in, in you know, most of the other, most, most other, many other wealthy countries. And I think the lesson there is that if you start early and you act competently, you can get away with, um, with a less stringent response. If you wait, uh, you will need a more stringent response just to even come close to catching up. I think there's another uh, thing about Japan, which is that um, there's a much more collective embrace of norms that get settled. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a quick mm -hmm. example. In Japan, pe pedestrians do not cross against the light, even if there's flat roads and they can see the horizon in in each uh, each direction, and there's nothing there. They won't cross against the light. I was in Nara, Japan, one time, and I watched a deer uh, from the local park do that. He just the deer just stood there and waited till the cross light turn green and then he even the deer agree on things like that and one of the problems i think we've had here is a group of people in this country who a don't think they should have to follow any rules and and b will sort of cherry pick information not for its accuracy not even for its helpfulness in protecting them with new knowledge about how the disease spreads and how they might avoid it but they'll just pick it because they like it so if they find somebody saying that they don't need to wear a mask, they will embrace that person uh, as opposed to any kind of scientific consensus. And I, I do feel, Jeremy, that our our individualism, our fierce throwing off of the yoke of authority is really hurting us here. I think I think it is. And I think that that has been aggravated by the way the government has handled and particularly oh, yeah. the federal government has handled this. So, you know, rather than trying to counteract that and trying to persuade those people and engage those people. We've had, you know, the president uh, feeding them, fueling them with misinformation. We've had him kind of marginalizing the advisors who don't tell him what he wants to hear and bringing on those who do, regardless of what their qualifications are. So we now, in effect, have a radiologist with no infectious disease or public health expertise running public health policy for an infectious disease pandemic. Um, and Mark Lipsitch, who's a, a epidemiologist at Harvard, had a great turn of phrase um, in an article uh, a few days ago. He said, this isn't evidence-based policymaking. This is policy-based evidence-making, meaning <laughs> that they are kind of picking the evidence to fit their preferred policy narrative rather than letting the totality of evidence drive the strategy. 
You know, there's a, a bit of news from the last 24 hours or so, which is that uh, said radiologist, Scott Atlas, who's the uh, advisor you're talking about that basically mm. is picked by Trump because he says what Trump wants him to say, as opposed to Anthony Fauci, who doesn't. Right. Um, he, Twitter actually took down one of his tweets. It was a sort of no mask, you don't need masks tweet. Yeah. And, and they pulled it down for counterfactualism. And, yeah. you know, maybe you could say a little bit about this, because that's another problem is that we now have uh, a social media infrastructure which allows bad information to flow as freely and virally as good information. Oliver Wendell Holmes is is wrong. There's no marketplace mm -hmm. of ideas that sorts out good from bad. But from what from your perspective do you see about that? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of I think it was Mark Twain who said that. Um, the 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 lie gets around the world three times while the truth is still getting its boots on um and mm. uh, maybe to counter holmes there um i think that that's what we see with twitter but again you know somebody has to be telling the lie in the first place there and what we need to see from our government is credible information and um and you're always going you know there will always be the conspiracy minded there will always be the crazy groups on facebook i think what is different and quite singular in this pen in in this crisis is that it is the government is the top of the government that is supplying or at least validating a lot of the misinformation. So it's not something where, you know, the, the fringes are consigned to the fringes. The fringes are being brought into the White House. You know, the fringes are being spouted by the president. The fringes are being, you know, are sitting in the situation room and making policy. And and so, you know, there is a scientific consensus on this, but there is also a concerted attempt to try and, uh, create confusion around that scientific consensus by cherry picking, um, cherry picking evidence or taking evidence out of context and not looking at the totality of what we see. And and that is why, you know, why do we have uh, massively more deaths than Germany has? Well, Germany followed a science-driven policy, and um, you know there are other differences between us and Germany, but it's really hard to say. There's some, you know, our health systems are so dramatically different. Um, or, you know, our level of baseline population health is so dramatically different that we should have four times the per capita death rate that they have. Um, you know, if it were a pill we could buy that would cut our death rate to Germany's levels, we'd, you know, the, the, the maker of that pill would, would be printing their own money. And instead, all it takes is, well, all it takes, what it takes is competent leadership. And that's the one thing we haven't had. Um, we're going to run out of time pretty quickly here, and it's too bad because you, you're so great. Um, uh, and um, But, you know, one of the things that we just uh, talking about that cherry picking of information, one of the things we're now wrestling with and trying to deal with is this so-called Great Barrington Declaration. Mm. I think even the town of Great Barrington is actually rejected. <laughs> just about it. <laughs> Get our name off yeah. this thing. But, you know, yeah. what's fascinating about this is it's signed not by, you know, people who run health food stores or salon owners or something like mm. that. It is signed by people who have more or less the right to degrees and work for some of the more or less, you know, reputable institutions. Jeremy, where do these people come from? I mean, I, I know money plays a role in this. I know the Koch brothers are funding some of this, but where does it, where do they come from? Uh, you know, I can't claim to understand what's motivating them. I, you know, I, I can I say with a lot of confidence, it's not evidence. Yeah. Um, why they're doing this, I'm not sure. I, a couple things strike me about this. So the first is, so there's a, there are kind of two competing declarations now. There's the Great Barrington Declaration, and then there was a, uh, a rival, what's being called the John Snow Declaration, after the, um, the the man who kind of created the field of epidemiology. Right, not the Game uh, of Thrones guys. I got not the Game of Thrones guys, someone much cooler than that, who saved a lot more lives. Um, uh, 
and Google him. It's, it's really cool what he did. But uh, that, you know, so the Great Barrington Declaration, if you read it, there's no reference to science. There's no reference to scientific evidence. There are no references to studies. There is no, you know, there, there's no footnotes take, pointing you to pieces of evidence. It's just all assertion, assertion, assertion. The Jon Snow Declaration um, it is grounded in evidence. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing is they're not really grappling. So they talk about shielding the vulnerable, but there's no serious attempt to grapple with what that would take. Um, and, and this is what really just I find fascinating about the advocates of the so-called herd immunity approach and shield the vulnerable approach is that if you're, if you're going to do that, and I'm highly skepti- skeptical it could work, but you have to have a plan for how you would intend to shield those people. Right. And we're, we we're going to see any of that. We're going to have to stop there, Jeremy. But yes, there's a kind of heartlessness about the whole thing. Absolutely uh, you know, if you're immunosuppressed or you're, you know, 75 years old or something, it's like, you know, I mean, how are you supposed to get away from everybody else? But Precisely. Jeremy Kornindyk, we're so lucky to have you today. Senior policy fellow and pandemic preparedness expert at the Center for Global Development. Uh, thanks for doing this today. We'd love to have you back. And oh boy, I really love my guest today. And you can let your dog in now. <laughs> Give him a lacrosse ball. They like lacrosse I will. balls. All right. Uh, it's a so much. All right. Thanks for doing this. Thanks again to Betsy Kaplan, Cad Pastor, Jonathan McPants. We'll be with you all week long.